Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the future of mobility and manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in the automotive and industrial manufacturing industries and supporting ecosystems, and help them move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to help make the world a better place, then it's time to run and drive Ooh, with the game changers. And this is where the best are. Let's see what the buzz on the street is today. I have a quote from, oh, surprise, surprise, CapGemini.com. Let me read this opening buzz quote, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about our topic, and then I'll ask our guests to introduce themselves. So here we go. A new future is being written for the automotive industry. Companies that have spent decades perfecting the production of vehicles are now reinventing themselves Aha! as mobility services providers in favor of environmental sustainability. Old paradigms are not valid anymore. Disruptions enforce the change. New technologies, sustainability needs, environmental regulations. That's the buzz. Now, we're talking specifically today about automotive suppliers. So let me give you a little background. Being an automotive supplier has never been more challenging than right now. And that quote led into this topic. Why? Well, we all know worldwide global pandemic, COVID-19, coronavirus, whatever you want to call it. It's disrupted business in a fundamental way. However, there is a bright side, a positive side. It is accelerating several long-running trends that are good. Under pressure from catastrophes, market forces, and technological disruption, suppliers need to navigate a minefield of issues to enable their companies to succeed. They want to succeed. They want to thrive. They want to be here when all these trends are happening. So what major forces will shape the automotive supplier sector for the next five years? How can suppliers overcome the crises of now while being agile enough to seize the future and a good future? And I don't even call it the new normal. I call it the current abnormal, and hopefully everything will be brand new and wonderful. We have two experts on the show with me today. We have Michael Hessler at Capgemini, and we have Rich Lindau at SAP. And they're going to share their insights on what lies ahead in the next five years. I call it a half decade for automotive suppliers to be positioned for success. Welcome. I am Bonnie D. Graham. I notice we have uh, somebody from Capgemini here in the room with us, somebody from SAP. They are silent partners on the show. So welcome to Ashwin Manapali and to Dan Chamberlain. Thank you for joining us. And we are here on Zoom. I have the pleasure and privilege of seeing my smiling. They're ready to smile now. They're my smiling panelists who are happy to be here. See, that always gets a smile. My listeners, they can't hear your smiles, but they know you're smiling when you talk. Michael Hessler, you're a newcomer to Game Changers. We're so happy to have you. Please take about two minutes, three minutes, introduce yourself and tell us not only what you do, a little bit about your role at Capgemini, but your overview of the current status of automotive suppliers and where you see it going. Just an, an overview. Welcome, Michael. Sure. Uh, good morning. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, Mike Hester with Capgemini. I'm a uh, vice president responsible for our automotive practice in North America. I've been working in automotive for the past 20 plus years and have seen a lot of change. I would say the level of change we're seeing now, I have not experienced before, and that was even before COVID. So I think it's a very exciting time to be in the industry, uh, excited about this topic. We're going to talk about what's going on in the overall mobility space, how that's impacting OEMs and the specifically suppliers. So happy to be here this morning. 
I'll look forward to the conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to have you here. And let's go to Rich Lindau. Rich, you and I know each other for years and years and years, but I think this is the first time you've been on a show. Correct me if I'm right. Rich, introduce yourself, please. That is correct, Bonnie. You are right on. My name is Rich Lindau. I'm, I'm a senior solution specialist at SAP, specifically in the automotive industry business unit. I'll, let me break that down a little bit because that's a pretty that's, that's a mouthful. Um, my role is to work with our, our customers, uh, our development organization, as well as our team in the field to make sure that we have relevant solutions to, to drive this space forward and, and make sure our customers can innovate and, and pivot in the challenges that we're going to talk about today. So I've been at SAP a little over two years. Um, prior to that, I did 10 years of consulting for automotive suppliers, OEMs, and, and mobility providers. Uh, I've been around the automotive industry and manufacturing industry my whole life. I actually grew up, uh, my, my mom and dad both worked in foundries. And during the summer, I was the, the cleanup boy who made sure to dry up all the oil and, and sweep up all the metal shavings. So I've seen it from uh, teenage years all the way to now uh, mid-30s. You're still a very, very young boy, I'll say that. Thank you very much, Rich. Happy to have you both. And in case everybody's wondering, we usually have three on the show. We have two today because they are such powerful thought leaders. That's all we need today. So thank you very much. Nice to meet you both. Uh, Let's go to, this is the part of the show where my panelists have in advance sent me an interesting quote that has absolutely nothing to do with the topic. I'm going to read the source of the quote, and then they're going to tell me how they picked the quote and what in the world does it have to do with our topic today. So Michael Hessler sent me a quote from, well, everybody says it's from Abraham Lincoln, but Michael knows I am a devotee of quote investigators. So I looked this one up and it turns out the quote is from William Makepeace Thackeray who lived from 1811 to 1863, an Indian-born English novelist, author, and illustrator, known for his satirical works, particularly his novel in 1848, Vanity Fair, which was a panoramic portrait of British society, and the 1844 novel, The Luck of Barry Lyndon, L-Y-N-D-O-N, adapted for a film by Stanley Kubrick in 1975. That's quite a stretch, isn't it? Here's the quote. It's very short. It's seven words. We like short quotes, Michael. Here we go, and you're going to explain this to us. Whatever you are, be a good one. Oh, I like that. Michael, what does that have to do with our topic? Go ahead. Yes. Well, let me start with a little background. So that was one of my father's favorite quotes, but it applies back in the 1860s as much as it does today. Um, for me, you know, I, I'm inspired by people that excel. I ex- I'm uh, inspired by people that hone their craft and put in the time and energy to become proficient, to become good. I think it applies today in this context because there's so much change and is going to require suppliers to rethink what they focus on, to retool, to retrain uh, their organizations to succeed in the new realities of of mobility and automotive. Um, If you think about things like AI and machine learning, um, you as as a human are going to have to do something that's unique and better uh, than a robot or AI-driven computer can do. And so it's, uh, it's an inspiring quote. I think it's something we should all strive for. I think it applies very much today with, with what's happening in the industry. 
And Michael, it applies to, it's something you want to put on a pillow, crochet a pillow and have it on your couch or put it on your wall of your kitchen for your kids to see, for everybody to see whatever you are, be a good one. That Those are words to live by. I have never seen the quote before and I want to thank you. I sure. appreciate that. Uh, interesting. Thank you very much. Let's go around to Rich Lindau. And Rich just sent a quote. Oh, we love this one from Mike Tyson. Michael Gerard Tyson, born in 1966. I call him a young guy. Is an American former professional boxer who competed from 1985 to 2005. That's a long career. He was the undisputed world heavyweight champion from 87 to 1990. The first heavyweight boxer to simultaneously hold the WBA. WBC and IBF titles, as well as the only heavyweight to successfully, successively unify them. And his first belt came at the age of 20 years, four months and 22 days, which makes him the youngest boxer to win a heavyweight title. And you can all read about him everywhere. Here is the quote. This is cool. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Rich, how did I do with that? Go ahead, Rich. How'd you pick uh, this one? You nailed it. I, I think we can call, you know, in, we can call Mike Tyson a, a game changer in, in the theme of this show. Uh, you know, I, I picked the quote because I, I think it's perfectly fitting for the situation that was in, in late 2019 as, as also as it is here in, in 2020. You know, automotive suppliers had a plan. They knew what they were, they knew the challenges they were faced with. They knew electrified vehicles were coming. They knew that autonomous vehicles were coming but they had no idea that a global pandemic was coming. They all had a plan and they all got punched in the face. We all have been punched in the face for, you know, for lack of a better term. And I think this quote perfectly fits that. We all have to now be agile. We all now have to pivot in our own lives, just as businesses have to pivot to, to understand how they operate and what is the, the new normal and figure out a way to be profitable, successful and innovative. Thank you very much. Before we get to the roundtable part, and my panelists have very graciously and generously sent me many discussion statements to lead the roundtable. We're very early in the show. So I want to get some, do some level setting. Okay, Michael Hessler, let's define who is an automotive supplier? What kinds of companies are we talking about? Where do they fit into the food chain, if you will, of automotive? Uh, what qualifies as a supplier? Just give us an example. You don't have to mention companies if you don't want to, but what kind, just so the audience knows, what kinds of parts and, and machinations and, and instrumentation are we talking about that qualifies for the audience that we're speaking to today? Michael? Sure. And, and it's interesting because I think that definition is changing and it's going to change. But if you think about quintessentially, take interior systems. So suppliers that design, co-design the interior systems of a vehicle, the headliners, the seating, you know, the dashboard, uh, a lot of the electronics that go into it. I mean, what we've seen in the last couple of decades is, is larger suppliers with more integrated systems. So instead of just supplying the Council or just supplying the headliner, I'm now supplying the entire uh, interior system. And so what we've seen over the last 20 years is these companies are very large companies, billions and billions of dollars. But that's a good example. I think when we get into the show, we're going to talk about what, what a supplier might look like in the future. As you think about EVs, you think about you know, the vehicle becoming a data center on wheels. But uh, from a quintessential uh, point of view, it's, it's these large partners that work with the OEMs uh, to help bring 
these vehicles to market at scale on a global basis. Most of them are international. Uh, like I said, they're large companies, a lot of uh, integrated supply chains uh, to get products to the OEMs on a just-in-time basis with the quality expectations that we all expect in this day and age. Thank you. Rich, add to that, please. Thoughts about where they are, how big they are, what they do. Some of your favorite suppliers, if you want, yeah. Rich Lindell. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, just just building off what, what Michael said. I mean, that's we're, we're seeing that change, right? So it, it used to be, as as he said, these these suppliers who were focused on components. But now some of the largest automotive suppliers on the globe supply lines of code. They supply uh, artificial intelligence. Mm. Uh, they supply cybersecurity solutions, right? It's just fundamentally different. And different isn't bad. Different's pretty cool in this fact. I mean, your, your vehicle is becoming the technological center of your world, just like your phone became the technological center of your world in, in the 90s and, and early 2000s. That's what we're seeing with, with automotive or, or if we want to call it mobility. It, it's, a, it's pretty cool. It's a big change. It is cool. And thank you for that. And, and mentioning automotive, for those of you tuning in, this is a new name recently, name change and a game change for this series. This used to be the future of cars with game changers, but we broadened the scope to the future of mobility and manufacturing. And I have to do a shout out to our sponsor at SAP, Judy Cubis, and also to Aswin Manapali, who works with Judy and is responsible for putting these shows together, the topics and the guests. And thank you, Aswin. He's here in the Zoom room and he can't, we can see, we can't see him, he can see us. So let's go to start our round table now. We're a little bit early, but let's dive in because we have a lot to talk about. Michael Hessler sent me the following statement. I'm gonna see if we can go in order here. One from Michael, then one from Rich, and we'll go back and forth and, and get your take and gentlemen don't be afraid to disagree with each other that's fine <laughs> we we love controversy and a little bit of provocation or provocativeness i like the word provocation better so here's what michael told me before the show michael said software will define the future vehicle it will be a data center on wheels i think rich alluded to that a little bit a moment ago michael why don't you expand this to how it impacts the suppliers or what their role is in making the car a data center on wheels. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, sure. And it, and it does tie into the opening remarks there. So um, if you just think about vehicles today, uh, on average, they have about 200,000 lines of code on the vehicle. As you contemplate uh, level four autonomy, as you contemplate connecting the vehicle to the surrounding ecosystem, the, the V to X connections, that vehicle will have over a billion lines of code on it. That vehicle will be processing and transmitting four terabytes of data per hour. So if you think about what that means to a supplier, what it means to a supplier is they are gonna become software companies. It means they're, they're gonna operate differently because the amount of collaboration between OEM and supplier is gonna increase significantly as you think about managing that complexity, as you think about managing change, as you think about really building a system, an ecosystem that drives the trust necessary, the trust of governments, the trust of um, uh, consumers, the trust of, of businesses to, to execute their, their mobility needs, right? On a driverless last mile basis or on a secure platform that can't be um, hacked and held for ransom. So I do think that major change coming for suppliers, 
major change driven by EV as well as uh, mobility and, and autonomous. Uh, another example would be, you know, EV has about 20 moving parts. A current combustion-based vehicle has about 2,000 moving parts. So you think about the simplification of the actual vehicle itself, a lot of suppliers are going to be in the software business. Fascinating. You mentioned so many lines of code, Michael. I'm, I'm a coder from way back in the day. People have accused me of being an early woman in tech. I was in the key punch days on a Xerox Sigma 6 CP5 oh. in COBOL. And I know what it takes to write 2,000 lines of code and have them run it. But after you enter them and after you upload the deck. Uh, I- interesting. I don't think people are aware of this. Rich Lindau, join us and thoughts on what Michael just shared. This, this to me is a wow. We don't realize the complexity. We see a car. We get in a car and everything behind the scenes has to come from somewhere. So Rich, talk to me. Yeah. Hard to, hard to disagree with, with Michael on this one. I mean, the, the amount of processing power that just a, a vehicle, whether it's on board or in the cloud is going to require in the future is almost unfathomable when we think about it as as a unit or as a fleet of vehicles. You're driving down the highway, you're in California, you're on the 405, and you look at all those vehicles sitting there in traffic thinking, look at the the terabytes of data they're processing every minute. I mean, it's it's unreal. You know, 10 years ago, we would have never thought that that was our new reality in in the sense of how much data actually has to be transferred from whether it's car to car or car to cloud or or just kept within the car uh, you know ultimately we're going to be faced with uh, an interesting challenge and that is you know OEMs are trying to figure out how to monetize all of that data but in the end suppliers are also going to be faced with that same challenge how do they get the data back from the OEM to actually make good use of it whether they want to maybe they want to use it for uh, service parts information to understand how things are wearing out or breaking, uh, or you know how they can embed intelligence into different components in the vehicle. All of that data is, you know, it's been said before. It'll be say it, said a million times again. Data is the new gold, right? The same thing is true for automotive suppliers. Interesting. Let's just take a, a sidebar, a, a side road, if you will, for a second. Privacy, ownership. Who owns the data? Michael, does the supplier who puts something in the car that has a sensor on it, do they own the data? Is it the driver? Is it the leasing company? Is it the fleet owner? Is it, uh, is it part of a, a divorce settlement on who gets the car and they own the data? Is it the person who's sitting in the car talking or doing something? Michael, what's your thought? I, just, I don't want to take too much on this, but I think it's interesting because you talk about data in a car. Who, who owns it? I think it's it's going to be determined. I think it's unclear today. You know, if you think about our business and the way we work with clients, there's a lot of conversation these days about data breaches, right? So if I have a breach and, and somebody's personal information is exposed, um, it's a huge conversation around liability. And I think that will apply in the future as well. Less of a conversation about ownership, particularly as you think about monetizing this data. So I think it's a, a very important topic for suppliers as they develop, let's say, unique algorithms, you know, machine learning algorithms that, that really predict the, the service life and the failure um, codes and the failure conditions of their product, how do they turn that into data? As, as Rich mentioned, how do you go from supplying tires, right, as, as something that you buy on a discrete basis to as a service type models? 
So I think it's a, it's an important topic. I think it's got to be sorted out and it will be sorted out, but it's somewhat unclear right now. And people should start looking at data uh, as it's an, like an asset um, going forward. So, Thank you. Rich, weigh in on yeah. this, please. Rich? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, it, maybe we'll all have to sit down and read the terms and conditions that we always click through. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm guilty as the next person. But automotive suppliers are, are trying, trying, I say that, or setting themselves up to own some of that data. Whether they'll be successful or not, you know, that's mm -hmm. to be determined. A good example is Continental, which is, you know, one of the very largest automotive suppliers globally based out of Germany. They have an entire sub-company called Electrobit. The goal of that company is to help secure data in the car. So not only do they expect to secure that data, they want to keep that data. They want to monetize that data some way, shape, or form. So who owns the data? It's the classic consulting answer. It depends. It depends on the situation, the scenario, and what your customer ultimately, uh, your customer as the automotive supplier, the o or your customer as the OEM or mobility provider uh, would like you to do. Thank you. Good, interesting approach to the answer. I appreciate both of you. Rich, I'm looking at your statements. Let's go to number one here. You say suppliers can no longer rely on what got them to this point. Seismic shifts in the way that vehicles are built and new entrants have changed the landscape forever. Why don't you flesh this out for us, please, Rich, and then we'll get Michael's comments. Go ahead, Rich. Yeah, absolutely. You know, going back to my, my opening statement and thinking about, you know, growing up in an automotive supplier, if you would, uh, my, where I worked with my mom, they created kingpins and springpins for, for large trucks. Yeah, not, not directly into a consumer vehicle that you'd buy, but a big truck, right? That was just a tiny little place. And they produced product and they sold, they sold things. Very fundamental. But those things just simply, while, while you still have to sell things, it, it simply is not going to be the same. I mean, if you think of the way that large companies outside of the industry are starting to impact the industry, you, you really realize that the term, and we said this earlier, automotive supplier isn't what it used to be. I'll give you a really, really good example. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, an auto, is not an automotive example, but we'll tie it to one. So Amazon on their earnings call last week said, you know, we don't buy companies, we buy market positions, which I found to be really interesting. So that was in reference to Ring. Ring is a security company, home security company. Mm -hmm. But if you read the news, they also just bought Zooks. Zooks is a last, is, is a robotic taxi company and a last mile, in this case, last mile mobility provider for someone like Amazon, right? So now Zooks is an Amazon, is an automotive supplier to Amazon. Amazon's an automotive company all of a sudden. It, the, the shift in the way that we even need to think about these new entrants and the way that they impact the business is almost incomprehensible compared to even three years ago. Who would have thought that Amazon would own an automotive company? Un Unreal. 
Very interesting. We've talked for years about in, in well, the most visible case has been the banking industry, hasn't it? In finance, where you went to a bank, there were columns yeah. in front and there were tellers and, and you filled out a form and you either got money or put money in and you did something and you did your business. And then other types of companies, neobanks and other types of companies started offering banking services. Now you can do your part of your banking in a kiosk in a supermarket, for goodness sake. So we saw those changes those industry lines were blurring because new entrants are saying, hey, we could do that too. We'll do it different. We'll do it better. We'll do it faster. We'll do it cheaper. We're going to give you a run for your money. And now you're saying, who knew that companies that were never in automotive are now part of automotive? Interesting. Michael Hessler, what do you think? Please weigh in on this. Fascinating. I I think the automotive suppliers of the future that are successful and profitable uh, are going to be in the software business. It's predicted that 90% of innovation in the future with the, um, you know, the connected software-driven vehicle. 90% of the innovation has come through software. So I think they're going to need to be uh, innovative. I think they're going to need to be, um, they're going to need to excel at complex system development uh, type processes. And they're going to need to bring innovation to the OEMs and the broader ecosystem uh, to, to make the kind of profits that, uh, that their shareholders expect. And, and Bonnie, if I could, yep. if I could build off of that, I mean, I, I agree 100%. If we look at traditionally an automotive supplier, their margins in, we'll call them physical components, is somewhere between 2 and 10%. Yeah. We're not going to magically figure out how to squeeze more money out of a rock, right? So Mike's, Michael's exactly right. We need to pivot the business and create new lines of income into the business and software, autonomous drive systems, uh, machine learning is the perfect way for an automotive supplier to actually make money in this new world. Rich and Michael, is this a surprise to suppliers who hopefully are listening to the show either now while we're live or on demand, it'll be available later today. Our global audience, is this going to be a shock and amazement what they're hearing you say, talking about the broader ecosystem, new ways to monetize, being able to pivot, getting their new, their, their quote unquote, no longer new, but considered new technologies like AI and ML to help them be positioned for success and for that seismic shift that Rich was talking about. Is this shocking? amazement are they all buckling down white knuckles holding on to their steering wheel of their business and saying dang we just can't sit here anymore we got to do something michael what do you think i mean i think it varies i think there are some very sophisticated uh tier one suppliers that are getting getting ahead of this and really driving that innovation agenda i think there are some that are just going to be flat out surprised and and shocked i think there's gonna be a lot of shakeup in the traditional tier one and tier two suppliers. We've talked mostly about tier one here, but uh, tier two suppliers are less sophisticated and I think they're uh, going to struggle with this change. Mm, Rich, thoughts? I saw you nodding. Go ahead. Yeah, I think there, maybe five years ago, there was a collective, oh crap, in the industry. <laughs> like, it's coming. What do we do? And, and some of that is some of these suppliers are going to get acquired and we see that a lot, right? The, these people who have a profitable business supplying products get acquired by larger companies who have a more strategic vision in the market. And that's going to continue and continue and continue. I mean, there's, there's less opportunity for automotive suppliers to make money on components. As, as Michael pointed out, you know, the, re- the reduction of 2000 
parts to 20 parts in drivetrains. That's significant. I mean, uh, a Chevy Bolt has 80% fewer moving parts than a gasoline engine car. And we all know the Chevy Bolt isn't exactly the world's most advanced EV vehicle, right? So a Tesla is going to be even more simple than that. So the ones that are surprised are either going to be out of business or they're going to be working for the people who are not surprised. And there's our broader ecosystem. You never know where that, what that org chart is going to look like, right? Yeah, exactly. The new ones, the ones that are eaten up, bought out, the ones that are happy to be bought out, happy to become part of something else just to survive. Michael, I'm looking at your notes here, and I'm going to statement number two. This is interesting. You say programming vehicles, and we've talked about this, but let's dive in a little more. Programming vehicles will be more like programming enterprise applications using agile, DevOps approaches, containerized services-oriented architectures. I'm going to do what they say on the news, Michael Hesser. I'm going to ask you to please unpack this for us. Michael, what are we talking about here? I mean, what we're talking about is kind of a a modern way to actually um, innovate and deploy technologies in a collaborative environment. So the idea with DevOps, I mean, at a basic level, is to get development closer to operations. So uh, the traditional way was to do a lot of large scale, long lead time type development, try to test every scenario and then launch a major change right to an application with all kinds of implications to people, process, technology. The idea with DevOps is you work a lot faster in a more agile mode, a lot closer relationship between the users of the technology and the people that develop it. So the idea here is you're going to have a collaborative environment We've got a lot of complexity, but you're also introducing incremental change in a way that you can manage that risk and manage that complexity. Now, from an architecture standpoint, and this will be very interesting to see how it sorts out because you've got to get collaboration with government bodies, with different competitors in the industry. But if you, if you said, okay, I want an open architecture for autonomous vehicles, means that I speak in the same language when I go into a city so I can understand you know, where to park the vehicle. I can understand if there's an emergency. I can understand if there's a, if there's a problem with, with me and I can have the vehicle take me to the hospital. Can I communicate with that infrastructure on a common basis with a common language? And so that's kind of the idea here is you've got a billion lines of code plus a how do you manage that complexity. It's going to take different ways of, of working together and it's going to take a lot of collaboration across the ecosystem. That's the thing. Collaboration is a key word today, Rich Lindau. Please chime in. What do you think about this programming? Yeah, I think what we're seeing in the supplier world is is exactly what what Michael pointed out. So, you know, think of we'll take a couple examples. One is Aptive. Aptive used to be a uh, spun off from Delphi. Delphi is a very traditional, you know, automotive supplier who who made powertrain components and many other components. But now they're an autonomous systems provider. They've brought software and components together. They brought those DevOps close to the product so they can be innovative. They can fail fast, as you hear in the startup world, right? Uh, and they can reduce the time to market of those autonomous drive systems. Same thing, you know, Waymo. Waymo is a big uh, subset of Google, right? They bought an entire old airport and set up a city to be able to bring not only the environment, the DevOps, the product and the code all together to drive innovation, to expedite the time to market of autonomous driving systems. And also, you know, in this market, 
people are very, very suspicious. We'll put, we'll, we'll call it suspicious. Mm-hmm. They don't trust an autonomous vehicle, even though the statistics of all the data say they're, you know, a hundred times safer. In some cases, way, way safer than that. So it's the, it's the responsibility of that automotive supplier. And again, back to the definition of an automotive supplier, autonomous drive systems, that is an automotive supplier. It's their responsibility to over-communicate and over-test. And that's exactly what we're seeing them do. Very, very interesting. I'm glad you brought that up about not trusting. Yes, and, and safety rates. All you need is one bad accident with an autonomous vehicle and it spreads, right? Headline news like wildfire. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't go near one of those. And you read some of the, you see some movies about it, about somebody somebody taking charge of the programming in the vehicle and they run them into the side of a lake or a river or off a bridge and you get suspicious about all this cyber stuff taking charge of your car and people are saying "Uh -uh, i'll walk i'll drive i'll take a in my community they have golf carts they decorate them for the parade don't even ask anyway (laughs) it's it's a third vehicle in a family um no i don't have one i just keep my sports car and i will be driving my own car in the next five years i'll ask you both that at the end of the show absolutely fascinating. Rich, I'm going to your statements now, and I'd like to combine two and three because I think they lead in. We touched a little bit on two. Let me read them together and then have you weigh in and then we'll see what Michael has to say. So Rich told me the following. He said, the rate of electric or hybrid vehicles on the roadway is increasing at an exponential rate. Suppliers are faced with the challenge of less components in these types of vehicles. Competition will only increase. Now, let's segue to statement number three. With increased competition, which you just mentioned, and fewer products to sell, suppliers will look inside their businesses to find competitive advantage. I think that's a a good segue, Rich. So why don't you take us through it? What does this all mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if we look at passenger electric vehicle or hybrid sales from, we'll say, 2015 to to last year, we saw an increase... uh, over double, right? From 450,000 to 2.1 million vehicles on the road. This year, obviously things are going to regress a little bit. I think the forecast I last read was somewhere around 1.7 million, but all things considered in a global pandemic, uh, just a small drip, a small dip there is is good signs, right? But if we look at how it how it projects out, you know, and you know, if we think of what what COVID has done for us, I think it allows us to all understand what exponential growth means, right? With, with testing rates and all that stuff. Um, that's exactly what we're going to see here in electric vehicles or hybrid vehicles on the road. 2025, we're looking at something like 8.5 million, uh, 2030, 26 million, and in 2040, 54 million, you know, new vehicles every year are going to be electric. That's a, a significant uptick. So, you know, Michael hit it on it, hit on it earlier. All those vehicles are going to have less components, less physical components. So we talked in depth about, you know, how suppliers are going to have to figure out how to be more profitable on components, how they're going to have to pivot to, uh, you know, and specifically look at software as a piece of revenue but also they need to look internally into their operations. We saw this probably happen with the Great Recession as well, where we downsized the workforce of automotive suppliers, but we didn't necessarily have to do less. We were more efficient. We found efficiencies. And I think that's what automotive suppliers are are going to do now. They're going to look inside their business, 
look at their supply chain, figure out how to take a tier one supplier, tier two supplier, and tier three supplier, and instead of communicate via email and communicate via, you know, we'll, we'll say it's archaic EDI technology or electronic data interchange technology that is industry standard, they're going to look to unify that into a single chain of communication. That way, if you're the tier one automotive supplier, you understand if there are limitations, whether it's capacity or material, at the tier three supplier. And in that way, you can communicate that up to your OEM if you're going to miss a shipment or if you're going to have a quality issue. Understanding and we'll, we'll call it, I guess, uh, lack of a better term, unifying that supply chain is the way that we squeeze water out of a rock for an automotive supplier. That's where we find efficiencies, dollars, profitability, and then long-term, what does that mean? We exist. We exist as an automotive supplier. <laughs> Thank you. I'm watching Michael bobbing his head up and down. Yes, we are on Zoom and I can see them, which is great for radio. Michael is saying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Michael, why don't you take about a minute and a half and comment on that? Because I've got some of your statements teed up here that are an interesting yeah. next topic. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think, um, I think they got to look at their operations. They got to get that next level of productivity. I think the technology is there to do that. If you think about intelligent automation as a way to streamline, simplify, um, reduce error counts in all their processes, I think it needs to be a big emphasis and a big focus for them. The other thing that's interesting, and we'll talk about this a little later, is we talked about suppliers getting into the software business, right? I think the other opportunity is the service and maintenance side. So there's a lot of disruption happening now out in the channel around service and maintenance. So uh, suppliers need to think about how they drive revenue, service and maintenance, generally profitable revenue streams, another opportunity in the ecosystem. But I, uh, I completely agree with Rich on his comments about uh, the need to, to take the roof off the place and, and rethink how they operate. Michael, thank you. And you preempted me a little bit here because that's exactly where I'm going. And I'm going to combine your statement number three okay. with number four. I think this is a great place to go. So thank you for segueing into it. Brilliant minds think a lot. I'm not one of those, but I'm just happy you did that. So Michael says, today dealers rarely, if ever, perform service off-site. In the future world, a new table stakes will be remote service anywhere in the U.S., regardless of proximity to a customer's home dealership with no in-person contact. The expectation for future service is a mobile-first experience, and today's wet ink on paper will be replaced with 100% digital transactions. And I'm going to go into statement four here. Michael adds, service scheduling will be conducted using AI chatbots in two to three years. 80% of organizations will have most of their customer interactions enabled by AI. And you've got some research to back this up. Michael, why don't you flesh this out for us and then we'll see what Rich has to say. Go ahead, Michael. Sure. Now, so I think that if you look at the industry, and this impacts all the players, dealers, OEM suppliers, but there's an expectation to have a, a digital experience. Um, with with the OEM, with their partners in, in the ecosystem. And so if even as you think about COVID, the companies, and I'm talking about China, Germany, as well as the U.S., the companies that had the most comprehensive uh, digital channel, meaning I could shop for a vehicle, I could finance a vehicle, I could take delivery of a vehicle, in a lot of cases, contactless delivery, they fared well and they're winning market share. And so this expectation is not going away Customers want to be engaged. 
They want to be engaged real time. They want you to understand not just where their vehicle is, but what context you have the vehicle in. And they're going to want um, one-click type service and maintenance, uh, regardless of where they are. And so tying that back to suppliers, I, I kind of mentioned it in the in the tee-up, big opportunity. There's going to be a major change in that channel, that service and maintenance channel. And here's an opportunity for suppliers not only to do service and maintenance and provide the parts, but drive um, maybe as a service type models. I mentioned tires as a service. Um, so it, it could be very interesting for innovation. And um, I see a lot of change happening in the channel there. Thank you, Rich Lindell. What do you think? Join us. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting change in for, you know, I'm going to use the what, what appears to be a, a legacy term, and that is dealer, automotive dealer, Ooh. right? Th what those the, are going. What those? <laughs> yeah, that's going by the wayside. We're going to have customer experience centers, right? And that experience center is going to extend out, as Michael pointed out, to wherever you are, Ooh. right? So sounds great. Sounds great. Everyone loves waiting in the in the showroom looking at a new car while your your vehicle is getting an oil change, right? And that's you're just simply not going to do that anymore. I mean, I think I read a statistic recently that said on the average vehicle over a five-year period, a dealer is going to lose somewhere around $1,300 in revenue per vehicle. So they're going to have to figure out a way to to make that up in, in one way, shape, or form. And that's selling cars or selling subscription services. They're going to have to, just as a dealer or an experience center has to differentiate itself to sell a vehicle, in the future, they're going to have to differentiate themselves to remain profitable and and they're going to have to be innovative. On the, the flip side of that, for an automotive supplier, you know, I don't know what the ratio is of parts of profit per, per component shipped directly to make a car versus after service, but we know that the number of components are going down. Uh, we know that dealers are going to make less money from those things and that vehicles are going to require less service. So that means less service parts shipped where the margin on those is significantly better. But also for a supplier, that means that there are less service parts to keep in inventory because they have to hold those service parts for those vehicles. So that's less money on the books that they have to hold. So it's a, it's a give and take for suppliers. It's really interesting. They don't have to hold as many parts in stock to ship all over the globe. At the same time, they make a lot of money on those parts. Where's the balance? It'll be interesting to figure out where yeah. that goes. Very interesting. I'll tell you a part that most dealers, if they're still dealers, when, when I'm, I'm a Z fan, I'm on my fifth Z, used to be Datsun, now it's Nissan. I have a 370Z, uh, red ragtop, no surprise, uh, pearl white paint, red leather inside, beautiful. Found it online. I found something similar, didn't even know I wanted the car, found it online, called the dealer. Uh, they told me some woman had put a deposit on it and they were going to sell it to her. And I said, I'll come with cash the next day. And they told me, no, they didn't call me back for two weeks, even though it had fallen through. And I said, okay, that's it. A week and a half later, the same car popped up from another dealer closer to my home. So I called them and I said, do not sell that car. I'm coming. I have a check. It's mine. I have to have it. Okay, I'm trading in a blue Z for a white Z. That's fine. Well, when I picked up the car, I let the man know. We negotiated. It was, it was okay. And I said, there's one condition. 
and they didn't have the part in stock. And the part was a huge red bow to go on the front of the car when I picked it up. And I said, I want this to look just like the commercials when people buy a car as a Christmas gift for their loved one and you see them come out and this huge red bow. I said, I want a red bow. He said, I don't think we have one. I said, I'm not picking the car up unless you have a big red bow on the hood. So he went to their department of decorations and apparently they had a supply of Christmas decorations. He tech called me on my phone. I was was five miles away and he said well you see what I got for you I pulled up and there was the red bow so we took pictures he said but there's only one catch we only have one red bow you can't take it home we have to keep it for somebody else so I have pictures but listen you're gonna you have a supplier who supplies decorations to what used to be I'm I'm segueing here I digressing uh Rich I'm looking at your statement number six I want to go here because I think this is a good place to take the we have about 11 minutes left and we've covered a lot of territory Rich is Statement number six says COVID-19 and the disrupted industry landscape is making everybody hold on to this one is making the Great Recession look like a speed bump. Oh, my suppliers who made it through the Great Recession have some idea of how to put survival measures into place. Suppliers will be consolidating operations to find margin and remain operational, but at the same time, look at low cost entry points into new markets. So we talked about new entrants into automotive, and now you're talking about suppliers looking for other markets. Rich, take us through this, and then we'll see what Michael has to say. Go ahead. Yeah, what, what's unique about our current situation compared to the Great Recession was, you know, things literally came to a halt, right? Manufacturing as a whole stopped, and that never happened. So, I think a lot of lessons were learned from from that time, we'll call it 2009-ish, that, hey, we have some fluff and we need to get rid of that fluff, but there was never enough fluff to just uh, <laughs> just stop, right? Not not ship parts, not make money. And it, it's, it's interesting. What, what I think is the most interesting is we're seeing those businesses come back online and no one's gone, which is, I think, a a lot of that has to do with the measures that were taken back when things were tough in, in the late 2000s. They learned their lessons. They did what they needed to do to, to not uh, over-inflate their operations. And they, they stayed with it. They kept with it. They knew that things aren't always bright and sunny and that we're going to have to plan for, for a downturn. Maybe not one of this significance. But, you know, some are going to fare better than others. And I segueing this a little bit, um, we talked a little bit about how the automotive supplier global market looks a little bit different than it used to, and how smaller suppliers are getting purchased by larger suppliers. I mean, to give you an idea of what that actually looks like from a monetary perspective, in 2019, there was $44 billion in automotive suppliers M&A, or mergers and acquisitions. And that was the third consecutive year of growth in that space. So we've been seeing this trend for a little bit and automotive suppliers trying to figure out how to acquire new companies because that's the fastest way to enter a new market, as we heard from Jeff Bezos, for example, buy a market position, enter that market, whether it works or it doesn't work, you find out very quickly. If it doesn't work, those companies get spun off. If it works, like we saw with Continental, they create an entire sub company to manage those new lines of business, which I think is totally fascinating. 
Thank you very much. You know what? In the interest of time, I'm going to jump to a topic we haven't covered yet. I'm going to go, rather than having Michael respond to what Rich said, I'm going to go to statement number five from Michael. And he says, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, today's USCAFE standard as measure of a vehicle's environmental pollution will be replaced, everybody listen up, will be replaced by a personalized carbon footprint calculated using the latest analytics customer vehicle and driving data. This is interesting. Environmental is on everybody's minds uh, in so many ways today. Michael, what's your thought on this one, please? Sure. So just for, uh, I think everyone knows, so corporate average fuel economy is that sticker on the vehicle. I'm sure when you got your your new car, it had one on it. So the, the idea there is you can use legislation to kind of drive this standard, increase the standard through the OEMs. What, what we're going to see is consumers wanting to understand their environmental impact as they make mobility choices. Uh, obviously, vehicular uh, pollution is, is a problem globally. Uh, you saw the uh, protests in India late last year around just the levels of smog and the contaminants in the air. And so the idea here is that, that consumers are going to vote with their pocketbooks as they look at mobility options, and we're going to have the data, the sensor data from the vehicle that will help you as a consumer understand your impact on the on the environment and what you can do to improve it. So you think about clean fuels, you think about just the maintenance on your vehicle, right? Has a huge impact on how much pollution. Uh, and obviously we gotta have collaboration again with, with governments and other uh, authoritative bodies. But um, yeah, I think you're gonna see the consumers, you're seeing it in other countries, uh, are gonna vote with their pocketbooks and they're gonna demand um, more uh, earth-friendly mobility options as they look at uh, at their needs. Thank you very much. Very interesting. I want to go to statement seven from Rich. Let's see if we can squeeze this in. We've got six minutes left. Plenty of time in live radio. Rich says, COVID-19 has given a chance for automotive suppliers, we've already covered this, to look inside their operations and ask critical questions. However, there has never been a downtime in recent history where companies could use the time to reflect on not only the way they operate, but why. W-H-Y. Rich, why don't you take about two minutes and then we'll go to predictions. Go ahead, Rich. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, there's there's never been a time where we just stop manufacturing things, right? Even during war times, we just called on a different workforce and brought them in. And and that's that's how things got done. In this case, we just stopped. And, you know, talking to, to my customers, it's been really interesting. They've actually been able to take this time and look at their operations and say, well, we know we've done that for 10 years, but, but why? Isn't there a better way? Before they had to work on these changes with running manufacturing lines and, and shipping operations and making sure that they're receiving goods and, and having it all work in unison and never being able to, quote unquote, take a chance or take a risk. Well, now, you know, when things stopped, businesses got to evaluate, well, why are we doing that? How about we pilot a program to try to automate the receiving process so it's less hands-on? Less hands-on is good because that means we we have less touch points from a a virus perspective, but also an automated perspective. It's much more efficient. So never before have we seen businesses take a step back, look at these processes, and not only ask how, but why are we doing it this way? I think this is a refreshing time in history to, for, for suppliers to do that. 
Certainly is. I am. I have to tell both of you, I'm so impressed with your grasp of so many facts and figures and so much knowledge and research on the, the plight or the future, well, both of automotive suppliers today. So we have a couple of minutes left. I'm going to give you each between 60 and 90 seconds for a prediction. We call this the crystal ball round. Why don't you take a look into the future? You can go as far as as close as tomorrow as near term as December 31st, 2020, or as far out as 2025. Michael Hessler at Capgemini, please do me the honor of your prediction. No politics, just automotive. What do you see? (laughs) What do you see coming down the road or up the pike or whatever direction you're going? Michael, go ahead. I think by 2025, we're going to see at scale, last mile autonomous EV delivery, uh, not only of, of passengers, but of products. Uh, the technologies are there. We got 5G coming on. We've got edge computing starting to, to, to be deployed at scale. Uh, it's going to give us the data. It's going to give us the, the mesh networks to actually manage that. So that's my prediction. Thank you very much. Rich Lindau, what do you see in the crystal ball? <laughs> I see even more change in the next five years than we've seen in, in the previous five years. And the money being spent and invested in places that we would, we would never think. So Amazon investing in and purchasing Zooks, Amazon partnering specifically with Rivian to do uh, automated last mile delivery or automated vehicle delivery. I think what we're going to see is we're going to see the the human element in a sense, as Michael pointed out, taken out of some of these things, um, which, which will be interesting to see how we as people react to that. Also, the one of the things that's going to be interesting to see how consumers react and, and the workforce reacts is more automation in your lives, whether that's automation on the, the shop floor, uh, automation in dealerships, automation in customer experience centers, automation is coming. How do we as a global economy, how do we react to automation and how do we ensure that our workforce stays productive, stays the same size, and ultimately everyone stays happy? It, it's a tricky conversation. It certainly is. Thank you both. Quick question. By the end of 2021, will you still, if you still do right now, have a car in your driveway, in your garage, on the side of your house, on the street parked in front, and your own keys in your pocket or on the coffee table? Michael Hessler, will you still be driving your own car? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Just for that uh, security, just for that in case, you know, something major happens. (laughs) There you go. Rich Lindau, will you still be driving your own car? Yeah, absolutely. Two two kids. Uh, I need my own car. I need to be able to go where I where I need to go when I need to go. And and also to Michael's point, it's a very good one. People are going to rethink the ownership of a car because all of a sudden you may need to go someplace in a hurry. Public Thank transportation you. may not be there. Very what much. What are you going to do? Thank you. I'm so impressed with both of you. I've been texting with Ashwin and saying, wow, what a powerhouse these two are. You, your grasp of everything, you have so many facts available to you and, and great insights on the industry. So I thank you. Shout out to Dan Chamberlain, who is here with us on, on mute and to Ashwin Manapali as well. Ashwin put together this topic and panel and we are very grateful. Brilliant, Ashwin. Really, really good. And thank you to Judy Cubis for sponsoring this series. Thank you to Aaron at the Business Channel team at Voice America for getting us on the air and keeping us there. And here is my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? My car is getting 
two and a half months to the gallon. How's yours doing? Go out and be a game changer today, just like Michael Hessler at Capgemini, just like Rich Lindau at SAP. Everybody be safe, be smart, be savvy, be well. We'll talk to you again soon. Everybody wave. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to the future of mobility and manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.